it's a show of public affection in front of her mother that does everything that she needs it to and that her mother needs it to without ever articulating it. And I really loved that. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This week's guest is Jessie Hempel. She is the host of the award-winning podcast, Hello Monday. She's a senior editor at large at LinkedIn. She writes features and cover stories for Wired, Fortune, and Time magazine about work, life, and meaning in the contemporary age. She has appeared on, among other places, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, Fox, CNBC, addressing the culture and business of technology, which is pretty cool and something close to my own heart, as the listeners on this show know. She has a BA from Brown University, a little outfit in Rhode Island, and a master's degree in journalism from UC Berkeley, a little outfit in, you guessed it, Berkeley. She currently, like most great, amazing people in the world, lives in Brooklyn, and she has great taste in boys' names because, like me and my wife, she has a son named Jude. Oh! Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah! You might hear him during the podcast. He's supposed to be <laughs> napping. So, Jesse Happel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Hi, Lucas. You picked All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thancombe Matthews, which is from Viking Press, fresh off the press this year, 2022. Why did you pick this book? I picked this book because... I stumbled into it truly by accident and discovered, I think, probably the best book that I have read in four years. So the rest of the world knows this now. When I discovered this for myself, I knew I thought it was great, but now it's been long listed for the National Book Award. So a few other people mm -hmm. agreed. So last summer, I was at the um, American Library Association annual conference, which was like a total dream for me. It was the first time I've been to this conference. And I got there and discovered that there are just a whole sea of people who like to get to a conference, go down to a hotel bar, sit alone with a glass of wine and read a book. And I like walked in. I was like, these are my people. <laughs> you know, I walked around the conference center and I picked up galley copies. And there were just so many galley copies of books that would be coming out within like the second half of the year. And I went home with a pile of maybe 20 of them. And I'd read the first couple of pages and think, oh, yeah, I want to read that later. And this galley copy was just sitting sort of by itself on a table and I started reading it and I could not stop reading it. It was an exceptional book. I immediately sent it to my best friend because it is a book about friendship. I have to tell you, Lucas, I don't even know where to begin with this book and why I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience, but also a completely different experience reading this book. So the first thing that I was like just knocked out by is like her prose is just like mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like she could write the phone book and I would want to read it over and over again. Yep. And so it took me a second to even get to what the book was about because every sentence was just dripping with description and beauty. And then I went through a real like sort of up and down with this book. And my wife knows because I talked to her about the books that I read as I go. And I sort of like loved this book and then did not like it and then loved it huh. again. And the reason for that is very simple. You know, I'm an outgoing like cis man yes, in the totally. world. And this character is the exact opposite of me. And I found it weird to get into her head and then really fascinating to get into her head Yeah, because I, I don't really have friends like her. Well, she's not always that likable, yeah. right? Like I loved the book. And part of the reason that I love the book is this character is like deeply imperfect. So she's a queer Indian woman, the main character, her name is Sneha. 
You catch up with her at the beginning of the book, and she has just finished college somewhere in the Midwest, I forget where, and moved to take her first job in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She Mm. is a young woman who has a lot to learn about her life. And the book is a coming-of-age tale. And so it really is Mm. the story of how she learns a lot of the things that I think land us with a more integrated and more adult version of our main character. And there were definitely Mm. points in this book where I really did not like her. I felt deep empathy for her in many ways, but I, I also felt sort of aggravated by her. Like she has this love interest. At the beginning of the book, I kind of thought that the book would be about her pursuit of the love interest and whether she got the girl in the end or not. It turns out to be kind of beside the point, which is a brilliant thing that I think that Sarah, the author, does. But it is interesting to me that at the beginning of the book, this amazing woman falls for Sarah, this black, heavy woman, a few years older than Sarah, who hasn't finished college. All of those descriptions are necessary because there are ways that Sneha judges this woman as not an appropriate romantic partner for her. This woman's name is Tig. And so Sneha turns Tig down and instead goes for a sort of blonde, very cisgendered, heteronormative, beautiful dancer woman named Marina, which that is by design, right? You're seeing this brown woman in the U.S. trying to figure out what her identity is here, going for somebody who absolutely fits the dominant mainstream paradigm for what beautiful is. And in rejecting Tig, she ends up just rejecting somebody who is so strong, probably my favorite character of the entire book. Hands down. Right? I mean, that yeah. her, her name isn't even Tig. Her name is Antigone, but she goes by mm. Tig. She's the character that who grows the most. And Tig's reaction to being romantically rejected is simply to embrace Sneha as a friend and to live into that friendship. And I think for the first half of the book, I was like, oh, well, this won't last. Like Tig will get a girlfriend and leave Sneha, or maybe they'll finally end up together. Like I couldn't understand, I think, because I am not primed to read a book that wasn't about their relationship in a way that landed them sort of romantically entangled or rejecting each other. It was very different than what you would expect. The book did this in several ways and several like small and big moments where it set something up that seemed so cliche and then just like turned it on its head. Right. And it usually didn't work out because Sneha's not like a great main character. <laughs> I mean, she, she is a great, but she's just not the one who's going to like get the thing done or do the, you know, like she's not a hero really. She just kind of like, The story happens around her almost. I love that you say that she's not a great main character because my translation of that is that she didn't show a lot of agency in her life, right? Mm. Like she was just going along. She had this job. You know, when it came to her internal life, for example, she knew that she loved her buddy Tom, right? She had this guy, this like white cisgendered, you know, BFF from college, drinking buddy kind of buddy. Bro, I think bro sums it up. Yeah, bro sums it up, right? And she manages (laughs) to get him a job too at the place that she has gotten a job and they're buddies throughout the book. And then it comes out that he is getting paid less than she is. And then it comes out that the whole job kind of collapses and falls apart and like the company needs to make a layoff and he gets laid off and she doesn't. And I wanted for her to step up and have some sort of an experience in which she stood up for her friend in that way. And she 
didn't. She sort of metabolized it and understood that it was bad, understood that she was stuck, and then just kept on going along. So this was what really struck me about her as a character was that I'm sure that I've encountered people like this in my life. I know that I have. And like, it's usually a pretty brief encounter because I think I, as a personality, am overwhelming to someone like that. <laughs> so it was really interesting for me to get into the head of like, just thinking about everything she did in this book, I would have done differently. I mean, just for the readers who haven't read it, there's this whole sort of subplot of her downstairs neighbor, who is also her property manager, just being like the worst complaining neighbor that you can imagine. You know, she drops a piece of paper on the floor and she gets a text message that says, stop with all the racket. Completely. And racist. Like, that woman was so racist, yeah. right? Uh, well, I know she, they thought she was racist. I, it wasn't clear to me that this was motivated by race. Mm. But maybe it was. That's certainly how she paints it. But, like, I had sort of a revelation about this character. <laughs> um, because I was thinking, you know, this downstairs neighbor doesn't exist in real life. I don't think. But then I was wondering, like, wait, maybe I haven't met this person because I am this person. That is like a big thing to sit with, right? Like, that's yeah. interesting. The downstairs racist neighbor, and I'm going to call her racist because mm. I interpreted her as racist. And, and sure. in, in part, that's because like, you know, does it matter if the landlord felt that she was racist, if the tenant experienced what she experienced as being connected to race? Is that what makes it racist? I think about that. That's a big question. And, and I think that that's true, right? And so even if this landlord would give 15 other reasons for her behavior, I think if this tenant experienced this behavior as connected to race, and even then, I don't think she did necessarily at first. I think she only came to that when her dear friend Tig, our favorite character in the book, mm. sort of brought her to that. Yeah, that landlord was... Like horrible. I think though that the thing that I kept coming back to, and the reason why I found Sneha so unrelatable, is because I live in a body that's not an immigrant's body in a country where I've never felt like my home is in jeopardy. And our main character mm. was a person who was also evaluating every decision as to like whether that decision was going to allow her to continue to stay in the country or mean that she had to leave and allow her to continue to support her parents economically or mean that she might not be able to. And I have to say, I felt constantly aware of the fact that like, I don't know what that feels like in the world. I just don't know. And so I appreciated the ways in which this character was unrelatable. And I appreciated the things that she might be showing me about an experience I didn't really understand. That's what I like too. And that's why the the downstairs neighbor kind of haunted me because I'm, I am the child of an immigrant, but my mom's Puerto Rican. So mm -hmm. we're like immigrants, but not really. Cause you know, so we come from a different culture mm -hmm. and we're full U S citizens in Puerto Rico. You know, we can move freely within the United States. So that was not part of her upbringing or part of my upbringing, the idea that you might be sent away or that your visa could be revoked. And so like seeing this character, Amy, and you know, it's interesting what you said about that, I guess to summarize, and you'll tell me if I'm mischaracterizing is that racism is in the eye of the beholder a little bit. I don't know if I agree with you. And and first of all, let me just tell you, like, sometimes we get into these conversations where like, it's a delicate subject and I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to learn from you. Totally. But yeah. So if racism is in the eye of the beholder, I mean, how do I, as someone who mm -hmm. endeavors to not be racist, how do I control that if someone perceives something that I'm saying is a racist? I mean, look, first of all, I want to acknowledge like I'm a white person talking about race here. And <laughs> to a Puerto Rican, no less. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that like 
everybody is racist and it's a dangerous thing mm. to say that you're not because racism is an, an individual set of actions. It is a culture and a set of institutions that if you're raised in the United States, you are steeped in, right? Like you have to peel mm. it off of you layer by layer and you will spend your entire life doing that. And that's if you're a militant anti-racist. And I would like to be a militant anti-racist, but I am not. I am a tired parent trying to keep my head above water. This is one of a million things that I care about and think about, which is all to say, like, I'm not the best person to answer this question. <laughs> and also, I just really do believe in centering brown voices on these topics, right? And centering brown voices means allowing a character who says, I feel that I was targeted as a result of my race to be the leading voice in a conversation in which another character says, I don't feel that way, a white character. So this is a funny situation we've gotten ourselves into because, you know, so I'm like now for some reason that I don't understand that is, has something to do with me uh -huh. identifying with the villain in a book that was written by a brown person, even though I'm also a brown person. And like, I, like, I mean, I'm not identifying right. with her. I don't think the book was about Amy, right. but I'm trying to like understand why was she so mean? That is really where right. my head is going. But that is definitely not the point of the book. I mean, she's a cartoon character in the book. She's just kind of a foil. She is, but you get one moment of humanity for her. <laughs> and that one moment hmm. is like dropped there on purpose. And it's been long enough since I've read the book now that I'm not gonna remember it specifically, but she hmm. and Sneha have an interaction out at a concert where Sneha, suddenly it right. perceives her to be like another human with you know mm -hmm. her own set of emotions and her own things going on and that gives you just enough to sort of strip her of like the villain mentality entirely and to realize mm -hmm. that actually what she is is like a character that you don't know because it's beyond the scope of this book right you could read another book about you know amy the landlord and she might be the hero of that book. And who knows what the hell is going on for Amy the Landlord. The only thing that's relevant in this book is how Sneha perceives her. That's totally right. And another thing that this book brought up for me that was like a, mm -hmm. you know, sort of pull over the car and like have a moment. Mm -hmm. And this was just a throwaway sentence in this book, but just about Sneha's internalized whiteness within her corporate culture. Because I am, as I've now mentioned 15 times, I'm a Puerto Rican and you know, I grew up in Westchester County. I went to New York City and got like fancy corporate jobs immediately. And I went to private schools and I, I was told that I was not white by a person in Maine when I was like 11. That was the first time I had heard it. But I've been treated like the way a brown person has treated my whole life. And I just didn't realize it. Yeah. I just thought that's how people treat people. Yeah. And like, yeah, she had this moment where she talked about internalized whiteness and that that was something that she wanted to or thought she needed to overcome. I don't know if she ever did in the book. But yeah, I had a moment where I was like, oh, I wonder if that's a thing that I feel. I don't know that you overcome it so much as you direct your attention to it. And so it stops hmm. driving as many of the unhealthy aspects of your character or personality as it can. You know, the thing that I loved in this book is that she found a way to be queer and be the daughter of her parents by the end of the book. Hmm. You know, there's this wonderful coming out moment in this book for her. And I particularly loved it because I wrote a whole book about coming out. So I thought a lot about the ways in which people came out. And like my book was, you know, reflective of the experience of people who look like me and came out at a certain moment in history. And her coming out is not a big announcement. It's not like sitting her parents down at the kitchen table and saying, this is a thing you need to know about my identity. It's a show of public affection in front of her mother that does mm -hmm. everything that she needs it to. And that her mother needs it too, without ever articulating it. And I really loved that. 
Yeah, it was an accident almost. And it seems like she thought that her parents, and I, I think this is common in stories I've heard of my friends who've come out, that they thought that their parents were going to react in a way that is much different from the way that they actually reacted. Yeah. And, you know, as a parent now, I feel like I could tell my parents anything because I assume they love me as much as I love my kids. Uh, you know, yeah. if my son Jude decided that he was, you know, just fucking name it. I don't care. Yeah. I'm still going to love him. Right. Or her or whatever, like whatever, if it's their thing, I'm behind them hundred percent. How old is Jude? Jude is three and a half. My Jude's four, just turned four. And you're right. You're right. You know, but I can see being afraid that your parents will, like one of my good friends is an actor, brilliant actor. And, you know, we did New York City theater together and he was in the closet, but like surprised to no one that he, that he was gay. And he eventually came out and he told us that the reason that he didn't come out for so long and I mean, can you imagine a more supportive community to come out to, right? right. The, he said that the reason that he didn't come out for so long was that his dad had offhandedly said that he would rather he be dead than be gay mm -hmm. when he was like 10. You know, it was probably a totally offhanded remark with no truth behind it, but that just like stuck in his head until he was an adult. Right. And also, I echo what you say about how becoming a parent has broken open for me, like every sort of assumption I thought I had about who my children might be and all I want for them is to be the truest expression of themselves. And also love looks really different for different types of parents, right? And, hmm. you know, especially like outside of our culture, I mean, that what I just expressed to you is like, I'm a product of the Northeast. I'm a product of cities. I'm a product of a progressive family, like all of that stuff, right? You know, I have a very good friend whose parents were Filipina and when she came out to them and said that she was going to have children, they just disowned her. That was their way hmm. of expressing, like, we, we need you to come around on this so completely because we feel like it is the only way for you to have true happiness, that this is the only thing we can do. And I only offer right. that example to just try to keep in mind that there are many ways that parents can attempt to love their children well. That's a theme that I find in just literature and life in general is that there really are no bad guys. Mm -mm. Nobody in the world wakes up and thinks, how can I torture my child? Yeah. Or even how can I be evil? They're, you know, they're yeah. trying to do the best thing. And I think that's why I really wanted to know why Amy was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, who hurt you and can we make you feel better? Yeah. So, all right, we've started talking about coming out and I think this is probably a really good segue into talking about your book. Awesome. We'll be back next week and we're going to talk about the family outing with Jesse Hempel, who is the author of said book. And I will fully confess right now, I did not get the title until I finished the book. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. Thank you so much to the Miami Book Fair for connecting us with Jesse Hempel. Like so many of the authors at the Miami Book Fair, she's an amazing guest. She's an amazing writer. She's a person you should follow and learn more about. And if you want to follow and learn more about a lot of different interesting writers, you should check out the Miami Book Fair. It happens every November, but it also happens year round. You can Go to MiamiBookFair.com. You can listen to panel discussions. You can listen to talks. You can see what's new in the book world. You can see what's happening in the next book fair. And it is an organization and an event that I am proud to be a part of. I'm proud that the podcast is a part of it. And I have fun every time I go. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. 
super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. Where did you come up with the name Jude? Oh, huh. That's a good question. We wanted his initials to be J-A-C. Like, I wanted to call him Julius Augustus Cantor. Um, <laughs> Because I was really into Roman history at the time. And then I wanted to call him Alexander. So I wanted to call him Alexander the Great. And Jude means, I mean, it means a lot of things. It means Jew in German, which yeah. is interesting, mm -hmm. but which is also like means chosen. Yeah. And then we're also musicians. So, you know, we love the Beatles. And so we loved Hey Jude. I love that. And yeah, so he's Jude August Cantor because we got engaged and got married in August. And it's like just our special month. I really love that.